we're going to talk this morning about a subject I'm sure is not relevant to anybody's life. We're going to talk about worry. Two questions. Uh, first question, anybody had anything this past year you've been worried about? I'll start. Both hands, legs, you name it, whole thing. Would you love it if you didn't have to live with worries? Here we go. Well, as somebody who, uh, I say this to my uh, fault, probably worries more than anybody in this room. It's my great struggle in life, and I suffer with worry all the time. I will tell you that the Lord does not want us to be people of worry. Uh, He does want it to be, uh, he doesn't promise an easy life. He didn't promise a stress-free life, but he does say you don't have to worry through life. As a matter of fact, it was so important to the Lord Jesus that here in Matthew 6, which is the very beginning of his ministry, he wanted to teach about worry long before he said many other things about himself. He had not even yet told the world he's the Messiah when he gathered his disciples here in the Sermon on the Mount who had just recently believed in him. And he said, I want to talk to you about one of the greatest problems in life. I want to talk to you about something that will plague your life, that will be an epidemic to your life, that will destroy you emotionally and spiritually, and it'll harm you even physically. I want to talk to you about something in your soul. I want to talk to you about worry. And I want to tell you that if you'll give me your life fully, and if you'll walk with me daily, you don't have to be a person of worry. Matter of fact, you're not supposed to be a person of worry. Um, Matthew chapter 6, again, the beginning of the Lord's ministry. He's gathered his uh, disciples around him. He's just been preaching to large crowds of people, but then he decided to uh, talk to the 12 and a few other believers about some specific things. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And uh, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to read these 16 verses to you where Jesus directly talks about worry. Matter of fact, this is the longest teaching he'll ever do on worry. Again, he'll talk about worry about 30 more times. Worry or its cousin fear. Jesus often talked about it. It was one of his favorite subjects. We don't talk about it enough. We should talk about it so much more because it's so antithetical to what we're supposed to be. We are not supposed to be people of worry. That sounds good. Easy to say, hard to live. So what we're going to do this morning is this. I'm going to read these 16 verses to you. I'm going to explain a little bit. Then I'm going to come back briefly and I'm going to give you five things I believe Jesus says to apply to our life to defeat worry in our life. Ready? Here we go. Jesus begins verse 19. Actually, most people think he starts on verse 25 to talk about worry. Well, in verse 25, that's the first time he mentions the word worry. He'll he'll talk about it five more times. But in the context of the passage, it really begins in verse 19. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus is going to identify for us most everybody's greatest reason for worry. You're going to see what it is. It's our finances. It's our possessions. It's our things. Then he's going to talk about it. Here goes verse 19. He says these words, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. The phrase there, store up, does not mean don't save. It means don't live for, don't hoard. It actually reads in the, in the language of the New Testament, the Greek language, it actually reads, do not hoard up and live for yourselves treasures on earth, things. Here's why, because moth and rust will destroy them and thieves are going to break in and steal. He's saying there, uh, those things that you're living for, they're going to be gone one day. Stop living so much for him. He goes on to say, but verse 20, but you, again, he's talking to believers here, talking to Christians. 
This is not a message to everybody in the world. This is to his followers. But he says, but you, my men, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. You live for, you hoard the things that are bigger than this earth, that are above the earth, that are heavenly, if you will. Where, verse 20, neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in still, there are heavenly treasures that nobody's going to take is what he's saying. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, where your real treasure is, earthly things or heavenly things, that's where your heart's really going to be. Verse 22, I'll come back and explain what this means, but verse 22 says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye, verse 23, is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Verse 24, no man can serve two masters. And there are two masters in the world, according to the Lord. Here's why you can't. You'll either hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise them. Your heart's not big enough to have two loves or two masters. Here's the two masters. You cannot both serve or live for both God and money. Now he's going to talk about directly talking about worry in verse 25. For this reason I say to you, do not be, that's a command, do not be worried about your life. That means in the Greek, the totality of your life, literally anything in your life. More specifically, verse 25, as to what you will eat, that's food, or what you will drink, that's water, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not your life more than food and the body more than clothing? He was speaking to people that thought, well, all I need to worry about is food and clothing and water. And he says, no, there's a whole lot of things in your life you could be worried about. I don't want you to worry about anything in your life. Food, clothing, water, nothing in your life I want you to worry about. Verse 26, he gives an illustration. Basically saying, guys, let me illustrate this to you. Look at the birds of the air. He was referring to the little sparrows all over the place in Palestine. They do not sow, uh, they do not reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Here's the rhetorical question. Are you not worth much more than they? He said, yes, you are. I love those little birds, and I created them, but you're worth a whole lot more to the Father than they are. And your Father still feeds them. He's answering his own question. He's saying that he's going to take care of he does take care of them. He'll take care of you. Verse 27, and who of you by being worried can add a single hour or a cubit to your life, meaning uh, you're not going to make your life be longer or you're not going to be taller if you worry. It's futile. Verse 28. And so why again are you worried about clothing? Obviously, that was a big concern of his disciples. He brings it up a second time. Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. Jesus was teaching the Sermon on the Mount here up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They, they would have been able to look over in the springtime and seen millions of lilies. He says, look at the lilies. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon, King Solomon, in all his glory, the richest man in the world, ever clothed himself like one of these. Verse 30, but are since God so clothes the grass of the field. That was a concept to them. Lord, you clothe the grass of the field? He said, yes, I do. Which, by the way, is alive today and tomorrow it's gone. It hardly lasts. But yet your father clothes the lilies. Will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Always in Scripture, there is a battle between faith and worry. I told you that Jesus talked about uh, worry or fear about 30 times. Almost every single time he teaches about worry or fear, he sets it up against faith. 
He actually says the teaching really means you're either going to worry or you're going to faith it. You're going to worry and ponder and, and really fret over it or you're going to trust me with it. They, they're not the same. They, they don't go together. They're mutually incompatible, worry and trusting me. He was building a new relationship with people who had just uh, said, we will believe in you, Lord, and we'll follow you. And he took it to a level they didn't know. They knew, Jesus, we're going to follow you as Lord, and we're going to trust you as Savior. He said, no, no, no. I want you to follow me in every single circumstance and situation in your life. And in every single circumstance, in every single situation, you're either going to worry or you're going to faith it. They, they don't come together. Matter of fact, the word worry in the Bible there, as Jesus used it, is not our English word worry. When we think of worry, we mean to, uh, worry means to strangle your mind in, in the English dictionary. The word worry as Jesus used it is the Greek word for divided. He's saying you're, you're divided. When you worry, you, you're double-minded. You can't worry and faith at the same time. You're going to do one or the other. They're not mutually compatible. Jesus was always real good about not giving two options. He always gave one. You'll either serve God or you'll serve money. You'll either love me or you won't. You're either for me or against me. You'll either trust me or you'll worry. Verse 31, summary, do not worry then saying, what are we going to eat? Or what are we going to drink? Or what are we going to wear for clothing? Do you see their panic there? I've said those words this year a lot. Or what are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? What's going to happen? Now verse 32. Uh, verse 34 will be the close, but verse 32, Jesus says, For the Gentiles, that's a euphemism for the unbelieving world, the majority of the world, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. It relates directly back to verses 19 when he says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on the earth. That phrase there, eagerly seek, is the same way, same thing. It means living for, hoarding. He says, the unbelieving world, they live for all these things. That's why they're so worried about it all. That's all they have. You have more. You have some heavenly things. You're bigger than the earth. I'm calling you to more than what you can see. I'm calling you something greater and bigger. Stop living for the lesser stuff here. The Gentiles live for these things. They seek it. They're panicked. What are we going to eat? What are we going to worry? What's happening? He says in verse um, 32, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Calm down, guys. He created you to need all those things. He knows you have to survive. You need water, food, clothing, everything. He, are, he knows it. You're living on the earth. I just want you to live for more. But he knows you need all these things. But here's what I want you to be back. Here it is, verse 33. I'm calling a new group of people to myself, and I don't want you to be people that worry. I don't want you to seek everything that the rest of the world does. Your Father's going to... He knows you need them, but here's what I want you to be about. Verse 33, but you, circle this in your Bible, underline it. You should have it memorized. But you, my men, you seek first, first and foremost, eagerly seek, store up, live for, hoard, Mike, his kingdom, that is things above this earth, bigger than this earth. You store up, you seek first in your life, not second, not third, first and foremost, you seek his kingdom and then his righteousness things that he says is right. And then all these things, the touchable stuff, he'll add to you. He knows you need them. And then he closes by talking. He's talked about the greatest worry, which is finances. Here's our second greatest worry, verse 34. It's the future. So also you do not worry about tomorrow or the future. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble in it on its own. That's a terrible translation in the English there where it says, for tomorrow will care for itself. He's not teaching fatalism. 
in the context of that passage, what it really reads in the language of the Bible, it says, so you don't worry about your future for your future is in God's hands. That's how it reads. You focus on the day he's got your tomorrow. By the way, there's, a, the third, there's three great worries in the world, finances, future, and your family. Jesus talks about two of the three right here. The answer's all the same. All right. Anybody want to defeat worry in their life? I need to. I'd love to. Uh, let me give you five simple and brief things on how I believe we can defeat worry in our life. At least we can get a start on it. Three of them are attitudes <clears throat> and two of them are actions. Three of them are things you have to believe in your soul as a believer if you're going to defeat worry. And uh, two of them are actions, things you'll need to do. First uh, attitude is this, and I'm just going to give you these as statements because I believe this is what Jesus was saying. First attitude is this, and this comes from left field, I feel like. It's a curveball. Before Jesus really deals with worry from verses 19 through 24, he is saying to us, you care too much about the wrong things. You want to defeat worry in your life? Stop worrying about lesser things. Stop caring so much about stuff that really doesn't matter. Go back to verses 19 through 24. Uh, you'll see three great truths there taught under the big truth of you care too much about the wrong things. You care too much about the lesser things of the world. Verses 19, 20, and 21, Jesus was saying you're giving too much attention to the wrong things, earthly things, stuff that's going to burn up. You're giving way too much attention to the wrong things. Verse 22 and 23 talks about the eye there. He's saying you're gazing too much at the wrong things. You love those too much. You lust too much for the things of the world. Third of all, he's saying, verse 24, you're governed by the wrong things. You really don't realize this, but you're serving, not God, but you're serving your possessions, your money, your things. That's a radical, those are radical statements. And I don't even know how to apply them to your life. But I'll tell you what the Lord is saying there. He defines it in verses 32 and 33. He says, but I want you to seek heavenly things. Things that are above this earth, things that are bigger than this earth. Better yet, way to say it is, I want you, listen to me, seek things that one day when you're in heaven, they're still going to be there. I want you to go not for temporal things, things that are going to burn up, that are, that are temporary, that will not last. Uh, things you eat, things you drink. I don't want you to live for that. So I want you to live for stuff that's going to last forever one day, that's eternal. I want you to give yourself to eternal things, not temporary things. or temporary. You need temporary things. I want you to live for more than that. I am calling you to a better life than the rest of the world. I'm calling you to more than what everybody else has. You're going to have to have the things of the world, but I'm going to call you bigger stuff. There's going to be three things one day that from this earth we're taking with us to heaven. Three things are going to last forever that are eternal. You know what they are? First one's God himself. The Lord himself that you know today will still be there 100 years from now, a million years from now. You know the second thing's going to last forever? His word. You know, the Bible says that his word will last forever. God has written his word one time. It'll never change. It goes with us into all eternity. You know, the third thing that lasts forever, you know this, the souls of human beings. Uh, every person lives forever someplace. So while we are doing life here and involved in the things of this world, which we have to be and should be, what's bigger than this world? The Lord himself. You should invest in that relationship. That's the, that's the most important thing I've had in your life is knowing him. His word. You need to give yourself to the truth of his words and live by it. And people. Every relationship that you have today will matter 100 years from now because every person alive today will always live.
Here's my question. What are you giving yourself to, really? What governs your life? What are you giving your life to? What are you gazing at? I can't really apply this. I'll, I'll illustrate this way. This week, I believe, is the NFL draft. Uh, the the athlete who's supposed to be the number one draft pick is the quarterback for Clemson, uh, Trevor Lawrence. I've really followed his career the last two or three years. He's a super strong believer. Uh, Several times in the last two or three years, he has quoted Matthew 6.33. And and not not into a Christian audience, just out in public. He's quoted that verse. But seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, a couple weeks ago, he was doing an interview for Sports Illustrated, and he referred to that verse again, and he said, hey, I don't care who drafts me, and if they pay me $100 million and we win two Super Bowls, that is so much less important to me than something more than that. And, I mean, he took incredible criticism. Every sports talk show in America last week has questioned, why would you pay him? All that kind of stuff. Who, what can be more? And he answered the question this week. He said, uh, I'm living for something more. There's something higher than right here. I'm living, some, I'm living for the Lord. I'm going to live to follow his word, and I'm living to invest my life in the souls of people. See, the first way that you deal with worry is you realize that we're worrying too much about things that really don't matter. Put the things in your life in their proper place. Stop letting them be God. Let them serve you. You don't serve them. Nothing wrong with things. We're about to sit in a second, but don't live for them. He calls us to bigger and better. Second way that you deal with worry, though, is since we do have to live in the real world and things do have their place, I love this truth. You and I need to realize that we have a heavenly father that cares for us. The bulk of this passage, verses 25 through 31, was Jesus saying, the Lord is your provider. Uh, He's going to help you survive. He used the illustration, the birds again. He said, look at all the birds. There's millions of those little sparrows. Those little sparrows were worth uh, one half cent. They were worthless. As a matter of fact, in the culture that Jesus was speaking to, those little sparrows were actually forbidden even to touch. They were disgusting. They were gross. Poor pagan people would actually buy two of them for a penny and cook them to eat them. And it was disgusting to Jesus' followers. A sparrow was horrible. He made this point, though, this dramatic point. He said, but your heavenly Father does for it. He feeds individually every single one of those basically worthless, insignificant, meaningless birds. They're cute and fun. He created them, but he's not their father. He's your father. He's their creator. If he'll take care of them, how much more will he take care of you? It's a radical statement. As a matter of fact, he didn't just say He'll take care of you, but he'll abundantly take care of you. Look at the, 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 is verse 28 there. He's talking about the lilies of the field. He says, not only will he take care of you like he takes care of the birds, he might even take care of you like he takes care of the lilies. Better than Solomon. We know this. Good fathers, earthly fathers, do two things. Good fathers always take care of their children. It's a duty. We talk a lot in this church about parenting. I'm going to tell you something. The first responsibility biblically of an earthly father is to take care of his children. He clothes them. He feeds them. He takes care of them. Doesn't matter how much you hug your kids. If they're hungry, it's not going to matter. You got to take care of their basic needs. We have forgotten in this culture to, to applaud in every way possible the fathers who give their lives to take care of their children. We take it for granted. You shouldn't. Good fathers take care of their children, and good fathers love to take care of their children. 
abundantly bless them. Nothing wrong in the world with spoiling your kids. I'd rather spoil my kids than not give my kids. Bless them. Uh, at the end of the Sermon in the Mount, of the, uh, Sermon on the Mount here, in chapter 7, verses 9, 10, 11, Jesus actually says more about this. Look at it in verse 9, 10, 11. He asked the question, he says, What man is there among you when his son asked for a loaf, he'd give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, he'd give him a snake? Verse 11, here's the application. If you then, he's talking to fathers, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? It is the nature of God to love to give good gifts to his children. You'll stop worrying or you'll worry a whole lot less when you know the father who I've given my life to will take care of you. He may take care of you like a bird. He may take care of you like a lily. He's going to take care of you. Now, let me tell you what this is not saying. What this is not teaching here is any form of irresponsibility or laziness. Uh, the bird still had to leave the nest and fly down and do the work to get the worm. The bird still has to leave the nest, fly down, and gather twigs and everything to build more nests. Uh, Jesus is, didn't have to say that to this crowd of people. He was speaking to a crowd of people in the Jewish culture that worked 70, 80-hour weeks. They would have no tolerance for anybody standing up and teaching laziness or irresponsibility. They worked 12 days a week, uh, six days a week, 12-hour days. They had one day off. Seven. They would have stoned him for suggesting laziness. It's not what he was saying here. Don't miss this. He is saying, though, that your father will care for you even as you go to work. That is his blessing and provision in your life. Um, first of all, the Lord is teaching us about worry. He's saying uh, you care too much about the wrong thing. Stop caring so much about stuff that really doesn't matter. You have a heavenly father that cares for you. And thirdly, huge truth is this. You have a heavenly father that's in control of your life. That's verse 34. He's got your future. Uh, to say that God cares for you shows his soft side. To show that, or say that God is strong enough to take control shows his strength. I'm going to make this statement to you. If you're taking notes, you should write this down. If the Lord is not in control, you should be worried. <laughs> if the Lord is not in this world that we live in right now, you should be worried. If you've never given the Lord Jesus your life so that he could take control of every part of your life, you should be worried today. If you have given him control, if you recognize that he is ultimately in control of this world, you don't have to worry. Um, about two weeks after this teaching here to his disciples, uh, he's back with his disciples again, and he's going to use the illustration of the birds one more time to teach a radical, radical truth about his control. I want you to look at it in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Walking with the disciples again, his believers, he points up to the trees again. He's going to talk about those little insignificant sparrows. And I think this verse, verse 29, could be the most important verse in the Bible that we never talk about concerning the sovereignty of God. Again, verse 29, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? In other words, they're basically worthless. Here you go. Here's the teaching on the sovereignty of God. And yet, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. What in the world? When you read that verse in the original Greek language, 
you need to insert the word will. It actually says, and yet not, a, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father or the will of God. In the last 50 or 60 years, and our Bibles have been translated that we mostly used in the last 50 or 60 years, the translators have taken out the word will because it's so controversial. I mean, it's almost so hard to comprehend. So what Jesus was actually saying was, not one of these insignificant, meaningless, worthless birds fall to the ground and dies apart from the will of God. Now you understand now why the translators take it out because you can't understand that. It's not even comprehensible. Again, he's talking to people that have given him their lives and he's already taught them about his care for them. He's already talked about, told them, said, I, I want you to stop worrying about stuff that doesn't matter. Now though, I want you to know I'm in control of everything in you. Um, one author says it this way. To say that God is in control of your life does not mean that you will understand everything he does or that he will explain everything to you. But it does mean that he will take everything in your life, your successes, your failures, your tragedies, your trials and triumphs, your mistakes, your sins, your flaws, and turn them into his ultimate purposes and plans for your life. If you can believe that, it will change your life. The Bible says it this way. Paul did in Romans chapter 8, verses 28. Ought to be a verse that every person in this room has, commits to memory. And we, talking to Christians there, know, not wonder about, and we know that God causes, literally in the Greek, has his hand over. God causes all things to work together. Literally, all things to come together. It was the word picture of an orchestra playing a bunch of different instruments. It comes together for one sound. God, he's saying there, God takes all the stuff in your life. He causes it to come together for what? Come together for good. Now, it might not be what I call good. It's what he says is good for the, his ultimate purposes and plans in my life. He brings all the stuff together for good. One harmony, one harmony to those who love him. Not to the whole world, to those who love him. And to those who are called according to his purpose, that last phrase means his purpose for your life. What is good in your life is his purpose. And he's going to cause it all to come together for his good because he's in control of your life. Real quickly here, one of the things that um, uh, take away from this point that your heavenly father is in control of your life. I think parents, and I've already said something about parents, I think we should teach one great truth to our kids every day of their life. I'm not so sure if we've done that many things good as a parent, but I'll tell you one thing we've told our kids, that with the Lord, things will work out in your life. Uh, if you can grab a hold of the truth that you have a heavenly father that you've given your life to and he's in control of your life, it's amazing the worries. Just, that's why, the reason why it's so antithetical to be a believer who says, Jesus, I give you my life, you are God and Lord, and I still worry. That's why it doesn't go together. If you're in control, I cannot worry. I just have to trust you. Um, hold your, I would, I'm going to look at this verse, but I'm gonna, I want to give you one verse here. Psalm 139. Students, I, I really think of you in this service right now. In that, um, does God have a plan for your life? Does he have a will for your life? Does God have somebody you're going to marry one day, already planned out? Does God have something you're going to do one day with your life? Does God have some place you're going to live one day? Does God have your beginning from the end already planned out? Yes, he does. You're so worried about things. Matter of fact, I didn't read this because I didn't have time, but the American Pediatric Association says the number one concern of adolescents right now is worry. They would say 31% of adolescents in 2021, they identify as the greatest problem in their life. 
uh, 31% of adolescents would, can say right now they have a generalized anxiety disorder. Never happened before. Psalm 139, verse 13 says, Lord, you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me before one of them had been. Three attitudes. We worry too much about stuff that doesn't really matter. We have a Heavenly Father that takes care of us. We have a Heavenly Father that's in control of our lives. Last two things. These are actions, real quickly. You have to combat your worries with the promises of God's Word. I'm going to ask you a question. Is this book in your thoughts every single day? Jesus here, he gave about six or eight promises to his disciples, his spoken word. He promised in several things. Don't worry because, don't worry because. This is his written word. These are his promises to you and I today. Um, uh, you know how you combat worries? The first action you do is you've got to put God's word in your thoughts. I'm going to give you two radical statements. If you're taking notes, write these down. Number one is this. Every worry you and I have is a thought from the devil. You may not believe that. That's true. Every worry you and I have as a believer is a thought from the devil. And the, Jesus said the devil is the father of all lies. It's always a lie. 98% of what you're worried about, psychologists will tell you, is never going to happen. But their wor worries are thoughts from the devil, their lies, and every worry, here's the most important point, every worry is ultimately a lie to you about who God is in your life. Every worry is a lie from the devil attacking who God really is. It's an attack on the character of God. You know what you do with a lie? You put truth to it. Somebody lies to you, you say, what's the truth? Uh, the devil's going to put lying thoughts in your mind all the time. That's his thoughts. Worry. You know what God's thoughts are? His word. You want to combat the lies of the enemy? Worry, worry, worry. You got to learn to put God's word in your mind. Here's the lies of the devil. God's not good enough. God can't do it. God doesn't love you. It's something attacking the character of who you know God to be. The Bible has one theme. If you'll open up your mind to read it on a daily, regular basis, you'll find one thing in the Bible is this, that God can be, anybody know it? trusted. That's the one thing in the Bible. Every page, if you read the Bible, you'll find either God saying somebody had these great problems because they didn't trust me or somebody had victories because they trusted me. It's all about trust. Matter of fact, the people that are going to be in heaven or hell one day, there's only one issue that separates that trust. One group said, we will not trust you. The other group says, we will trust you, Lord. Trust in God's everything. You know how you build your trust? You put your thoughts and worries against God's thoughts. When you read the Bible, you'll be astounded that God over and over and over says one thing, trust me, trust me, trust me. If you live constantly in your worries, I promise you, Christian, what you're going to hear is don't trust God, don't trust God, don't trust God. And you've got a decision to make. Or am I going to put my thoughts to the enemy of my soul, the devil, which will always tell me not to trust God, or I'm going to put my thoughts every day where God says, trust me, Trust me. Then you'll have to believe this word. You have to believe what he says. Good fathers don't just provide for their kids. Good fathers make promises to their kids. Here's God's promises. There's about a thousand of them. 
If you are not daily, regularly opening up your thoughts to God's thoughts, well, then all you're doing is open up your thoughts to the enemy's thoughts. And he will tell you all the time, don't trust God, don't trust God, don't trust God. And I find that worries never stop. They never stop. I go to bed with worries. I wake up with worries. I wake up at 3 o'clock with worries. I have a decision. Every single time those attacks come, will I trust God or not? In Ephesians chapter 6, it says the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. You use the sword, you attack back. It's the sword of the Spirit. When you attack, you attack back. You're never going to defeat worry in your life, Christian, if God's word and thoughts are not constantly on your mind. I've given you one verse just to kind of back this thought up. Psalm 119, it says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Where's my heart? It's my thoughts in my head. Treasured means to memorize. You've got to memorize God's word. Take it in all the time. Quickly and finally, the fifth way that we handle best or defeat worry in our life is this, is through prayer. And you can calm your worries with prayer. Now, it doesn't directly say here in the passage we've been reading in Matthew 6, Jesus doesn't talk directly about worry, but I told you the Sermon on the Mount is Matthews 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew chapter 5, he taught them how to pray by giving them the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew chapter 7, the last thing he's going to talk about is prayer. He says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock in prayer. So between Matthew 5 talking about prayer and Matthew 7 talking about prayer, Jesus talks about worry and the disciples completely understood what he was saying. You have to be a person of prayer. 20 years later, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul, I believe, directly quoting Jesus, says it this way in Philippians chapter 4. Best verse in the Bible on prayer and worry. You should memorize this. Do not be anxious or do not be worried about anything, but in everything, by prayer and pleading in prayer, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's God's promise. And then, if you'll give me your worries in prayer, here's what I'll give you, the peace of God. You know, you know what the opposite of peace is? It's war. You know what worry is? It's war in your mind. I'll give you my peace, which will surpass all understanding, and it will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus from worry. Uh, one more verse, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Here's how you actually give something to God. Look what it says there, 1 Peter 5, 7. Peter the fisherman says, cast, literally throw, all your worries on him because he what? We already said it. He cares about you and he can do something with it. Um, prayer does change things. Sometimes it changes your situation. Sometimes it changes you. But uh, our need right now is to change me on the inside of my worries. You know how you do that? God's greatest weapon in your life against worry is prayer. It's not an option. You have to be a person of prayer. You have to be a person that puts your thoughts in God's word. I gave you a little, uh, as I'm wrapping up here, I gave you a little, uh, this is for me. This helps me. I wrote this down for myself and I use this. I find that my level of worry somehow equals, is very, it correlates to my level of time in God's word and prayer. In prayer, I'm giving my worries to the Lord. I'm talking to him. I'm releasing my soul to him. Uh, when I open up his word, I'm receiving his words to me. He's talking back to me. Um, I, I, there's a correlation in my life. Level of worry and level of time in his word and prayer. When my time, it seems to me, when my time in his word, listen, reading his promises and believing them, and in prayer low, my worries greatly increase. My life's still stressfully the way, but the worries are different. When, when my time with the Lord is 
in prayer, I'm really giving things to him and casting to him, and I'm really hearing his word, my worries go a lot less. Just amazing how they two go together. I gave you a great verse. When my worrisome thoughts multiply within me, and then that feel like worry does, just grows and grows. Your consolations delight my soul. You know what his consolations are? His word and prayer. Um, I keep a list, kind of similar to these notes. I keep a list either on my phone or based on paper, sometime in my head. I call it my worry list. My worry list. When I'm really agitated, when I'm really feeling it, I feel, I feel worry in my gut. I feel it in the headaches. Uh, I feel it in my bones. When I really worry, and I've gotten where I have to do this every day, I write down a piece of paper on my worry list. And on my best day, it's nothing more than my worry list. I'm sorry, my worst day. On my worst days, it's nothing more than a list of worries. On my best days, that worry list becomes what? My prayer list. I pray about it. Cast it on him. Let God worry about it, if you will. And I give it to him. Then trust him. You're going to take care? You're in control here? That First of all, I'm worried about stuff that doesn't matter, really. And your word says that I'm going to trust you. And you tell me to pray, and so I'm giving it to you. As I close, a little illustration I think kind of tells it well. There's a story about an old World War II pilot flying over the Atlantic Ocean, a small plane, and uh, he hears a gnawing underneath his cockpit. He, arrives, he realizes there's a rat underneath there chewing on the insulation and the wiring, uh, and if the rat continues to chew that, it's going to kill him. It's going to take him down. But he also remembered that moment that a rat can only live on the ground or below the ground, so he takes his plane up to a higher level, different stratosphere. He gets to about 20,000 feet and the gnawing stops. Later on, he lands, he finds a dead rat under his cockpit and he realized that uh, because he took that rat to a higher level, it died. The point is this, the rats of worry in our life, if you keep them down here, they're going to kill you. Take them up to a higher level, God will kill them for you. And he does not want us to be people who worry. Wouldn't it be phenomenal in our lives as Christians what a phenomenal witness we can be in this world if we're not like all the Gentiles who eagerly seek these things and they're constantly worried. Wouldn't it be a phenomenal witness if we were known as people who do not worry? I think people would take notice. There's so much to worry about in this world on the surface. Wouldn't it be something if those people were known as people who, they still had all the stresses of life, the craziness of life, raising kids and going to work and all the stuff, but they did not worry about it because they trusted the one who's in control and he's taking care of them. I think people would hear our message more if they knew us to not be people of worry. It's a journey you have to be on. I've been on this journey for 40 years of learning how not to worry and try to defeat worry. Because if it gets on top of you, at times in my life, I probably look, I can look like the, the biggest unbeliever in the world when worry comes on top of me. Don't let that be our worst days. Our best days are people that we say, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to trust him as a church. We're going to trust him as a family. We're going to trust him as a people. We will not succumb to the rat of worry. We're going to rise above because of who he is. Let's pray together this morning. I'm going to ask you a question. We're not going to do a, a public invitation. Our time is about done. What are you worried about today? The Bible says that Jesus said the worries of the world will choke out the word of God in your life. What are you worried about that's choked out the Lord in your life? Well, in the next couple of minutes, Randy's going to play and I'm going to step off the stage. As we worship, 
as you got your head bowed, this is your opportunity to say, Lord, it's been a while, but I'm going to cast my worries upon you, and I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to not become a person like everybody else that's just worry-filled. Every single day, guys, every day, you got to pray. Every day, you're in this word. Every day, you're telling yourself the truth that he cares, that he's in control, and I'm giving myself to stuff that doesn't really even matter. He calls us to more. Father, thank you this day for reminding you of us of the truth of your word. It's so simple, but it's so hard to live out. Give us the faith to trust you even as we worship you now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.